millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRagar Personal Finance, episode 122. And in this episode, we will explore the concept called Kelly Criterion, which is one of the mathematical strategies used by famous investors like Warren Buffett, who's the chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, and Bill Gross, who founded and chairman of Pacific Investment and Management Company. Thanks to Raymond for suggesting this topic. Now, I'm going to be open and honest here and tell you this episode is going to be super geeky. You don't need to know this for the average investor. But if you are interested in geeky stuff, come along for the journey and hopefully you will learn something new. For those of you that are new to the channel, the aim is to educate, empower and entertain. With education comes financial literacy and with that comes empowerment so that you can take that knowledge to your credentialed financial advisor and speak at a level that you can understand in. And of course, the last D is to be entertained. Just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions after listening to one of my episodes back to your credential advisor. In other words, don't listen to some random guy ranting on the internet about money. But if you're stuck on what to do in terms of broad principles, here are some simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to saving, investing and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first. Take at least 20% of your after-tax money and put it aside. That is your money never to be touched ever again because you're the most important person in your life. Step two is you've got to invest that money, ideally into something you understand or want to understand. For me, I understand the stock market and index funds, so I just plow my money into index funds. Step three is wherever possible, you must reinvest dividends because the power of compounding is phenomenal. Step four is ideally you'd do it for the long term. Now, that doesn't mean five, 10 or even 15 years. You got to do it for at least 20, 30, if not 40 plus years. The longer you do it, the more beneficial it is for you, which means the earlier you start, the longer you're able to do it. And step five, my favorite, is wherever possible, try and automate every step of your investments. Automation means less chances of forgetting and more chances of sticking to the plan. If you did these five simple steps over the long term, you're more likely to end up with more money than you'll ever need. Remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, the lives of people around you a lot better. Before we go on to the main topic of Kelly Criterion, I have a question from Steph and Nandy who asks, I'm 38 years old. Is there a strategy for late starters when it comes to saving and investing? Now, that's actually a very good question. And it affects a lot of doctors because a lot of doctors 
are late starters. Now, doctors and people in healthcare in general often have longer training than other professions. To become a fully qualified doctor, for example, post-fellowship, it usually takes anywhere between 10 to 18 years, depending on your specialty. And that's if everything goes right the first time, which 50% of the time doesn't. And often during that time, the doctor's wages are quite low, they're working long hours, and the time to focus on your personal financial journey as a doctor is actually quite limited. And doctors are high risk of obsessing over their studies, which is a good thing because you want your doctor to be smart and knowledgeable, but at the risk of losing a lot of money in the process. And some specialties like surgery or physician training have high training costs, high workshop costs, high exam costs, and high failure rate of exams, which means repeat exams have to be paid for again and again. In fact, I checked with some of my general practitioner colleagues who have to pay up to $10,000 per exam cycle, and the pass rate is not that high. So what do you do if you're a late starter? In my view, a late starter is generally anyone who hasn't saved or invested anything before the age of 35 years of age, excluding their super. So if you're a medical student or any student for that matter listening to this, the best thing you can do is to secure your financial future is to start early. Whatever money you earn, make sure you get into the habit of paying yourself first and investing for the long term. And realize it's never too late to start investing and saving. Never too late. So here are some basic things that the question asker can do um, in order to try and maximize their savings or investments. And I'll repeat, there's no magic formula to this. Number one is you really have to focus on your savings rate. Now, I've done an episode in episode 116 where I talk about the importance of savings rate and investment returns. I discuss the important concept of increasing your savings rate during the early phases of your investments. Too many people focus on investment returns alone during these early phases, but that's potentially a fool's game. Investment returns generally matter more often More so, once you achieve a level of wealth where compound returns make a big difference. Now, a great example of this is Warren Buffett. He made more than 80% of his wealth in the years after turning age 65. That's an incredible statistic. You may want to consider as part of this is to increase your income. Because by increasing your income, you can increase your savings rate, provided your lifestyle is exactly the same. So how can you increase your income? You can do side hustles. You can get a second job. You can start a business or some sort of passive income stream. Whatever you do to increase your income means it has to translate into increasing your savings rate. Now, I also talked in previous episodes about increasing your marginal propensity to save. Your marginal savings like bonuses, payouts, holiday income, annual leave, locums, moonlighting for extra cash, whatever it is, you can save almost all of that. And if you try and save 100% of this extra income, accounting for taxes, then that just boosts your savings rate significantly. 
Now, if you're a dual income earner, the easiest way to save for investing and retirement is just save one person's entire income. Now, granted, it's not possible, but really, if you can plan to live on one person's income and save 100% of the second person's income, that'll just boost your savings rate significantly. This is in addition to your income you calculate your 20% pay yourself money. I'm talking about you've done everything right and your partner's income, you just save 100% of the after-tax income. And that just increases your savings rate significantly. The second thing you really need to focus on is you've got to reduce your expenses or try and stagnate your expenses as your income rises. So in medicine, there's a really good saying that the white coat investor says is you live like a resident when you become a consultant. Now, amazingly, as you go along in your career, particularly medicine, you tend to pick up a lot of lifestyle creep. I've done an episode on lifestyle creep, which is episode 32, if you're interested, where I discuss how you can fall into this trap. Now, I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I guess I have some lifestyle creep because I have a gardener and cleaners and all that sort of stuff. But I've calculated my hourly rate of income such that I can pay for such services rather than doing it myself. And besides, I hate cleaning and I hate gardening. I don't enjoy it. So I'd much rather pay someone to do it rather than me kind of wasting my time doing it. Now, you can also focus on reducing or stagnating your expenses when it comes to recurrent bills. Internet, mobile bills, private health insurance, and basically any other type of insurance in your life. You take the yearly cost and every year up for renewal, you simply make that phone call and ask for a better deal. Because if you don't, I call this a lazy tax. We're all too lazy to focus on the expenses and focus on the recurring bills. And of course, companies rely on our laziness to increase premiums for no reason. For example, recently, my medical indemnity premium rose for no reason and it's due in 1st of July. So... I just shaved off $1,000 just by ringing them up, providing more accurate information about my employment, and voila, $1,000 less, I just saved money. Now, what am I going to do with that extra $1,000? I'm going to invest it. Now, the third thing that you could do is you could maximize your superannuation. In fact, that's probably one of the most critical things that anybody could do at any stage of their life, particularly if you're a late starter. It's a very boring strategy, but it just works. Now, the first thing you need to do is you've got to make sure that your employer is actually paying you super appropriately. From the next financial year, guaranteed super is going to go up to 10%, not 9.5%. And time and time again, particularly for doctors, we are finding that superannuation is simply not being paid by our employers appropriately. So you need to check which means you need to learn how to read your payslips. And you've got to look at your super and make sure you look at any specific investment options and you've got to try and keep your overall cost ratio to less than 1%. It's a very simple rule. If you try and keep your expense ratios less than 1% overall broadly, then you're relatively safe. If you don't, then a 3% expense ratio compared to a 1% can eat up up to 60% of your 
investment earnings over your lifetime. So maximizing your concessional contributions, of course, is a really important thing to do. And if you're nearing retirement, taking advantage of $100,000 per year non-concessional contributions too. Remember, concessional contributions increase to $27,500 from the 1st of July, and non-concessional contributions increase to $110,000 from July the 20 uh, from July 2021. Look at the cost of your investment and the default balance fund. Is that the right thing for you? There are multiple different options in your superannuation in terms of investments. Um, so you can choose a low-cost industry super fund for the vast majority of people, healthcare worker or not, to try and reduce your expenses and focus on trying to plow money into your super so it works for you over the long term. Now, the transfer balance cap uh, also increases from July the 1st to $1.7 million, so you need to hit that amount during retirement, and that's going to index um, as we move along into the future, so you need to check every few years as to what the transfer balance cap is. And I would argue, if you're a late starter, to focus on your savings rate, reduce your expenses, and the next thing is to focus on your super, more than investments outside of super, because super is a phenomenally tax-effective way to save for your investment, for, for your retirement, beg your pardon. Now, the fourth thing you need to do, I think, in my personal opinion, and this, this might not be suitable for everyone, is you've got to get rid of your mortgage. Um, it worries me that more and more people are borrowing huge sums of money, particularly if you're listening in Australia, to buy their dream home. Uh, for overseas listeners, and I, and I think uh, you may already know this, Australia has a very, very expensive property market, one of the most expensive in the world. It's not unusual in Melbourne and Sydney to have median home prices um, hit more than a million dollars. And we've just particularly at a record high period at this moment. Uh, and I believe in the United States is very similar and also in Western Europe as well. And look, I'm not against a dream home, but I'm wary of buying too much house. Uh, you don't want to be having any debt during your retirement. Uh, and I would argue that you really should be mortgage free um, after the age of 50. Uh, if you've got debt to pay after the age of 50, particularly in your principal place of residence, um, you know, I would go as far as to say, and maybe a little bit controversially, that it's a red flag. So you've got to pay it off as soon as possible, in my humble opinion. And I guess to pay it off sooner, it helps if you don't buy too much home in the first place. So the Devaraga rule of thumb is if you are spending more than 30% of your after-tax income every year on your mortgage, you're probably overcommitted in the first place. To so try and pay it off and maybe refinance so that you get to that magic 30% after-tax income as maximum for your uh, mortgage repayments. Now, lastly, one of the biggest things, again, going back to what I said about savings rate versus investment returns is if you're a late starter, you have this sort of FOMO you have this fear of missing out. And one of the biggest mistakes late starters can do is they try and invest in high-risk assets um, like cryptocurrency or buying investment homes in a hurry without thinking twice about it. So look, again, I, I, I'm not against speculative investments, but in my view, they're speculative. They're not really investments. So it's a bit like you going to the casino and gambling with your entire life savings. No one ever does that. We go to the casino to have fun and we expect to win nothing. We expect to lose money. And that's okay. But 
I just don't want people who are late starters to get trapped into trying to go for glory and buying meme stocks and NFTs and crypto and all that. Again, I wouldn't bet the majority of your asset portfolio or your income and your savings on a completely speculative investment. Um, so take your time making financial decisions. It's really important. And of course, seek sound financial advice before making any such decisions. And I hope this helps for Stefan Nandi. And I provide some basic structures when it comes to late starters and when it comes to saving, investing, debt reduction, etc. Unfortunately, there is no easy way out of being a late starter. The maths is simple. The mathematics doesn't lie. You got to make money. You got to spend less than what you earn and you got to invest the rest. Uh, that is the equation. There's no other secret formula or strategy. Um, and, you know, putting high risk uh, assets into your portfolio to try and make a quick buck is not an investing strategy. Uh, if you want peace of mind and a good night's sleep, I'm not saying it's a completely bad strategy for everyone, but risky for those late starters looking to make a quick buck. Remember, they are late starters and haven't invested or saved much um, uh, up until that point of time. Now to the main topic of Kelly Criterion. So what is Kelly Criterion? It's also called Kelly Strategy and Kelly Formula. Uh, one of the most common questions I get is, one, where should I invest? And I'm not a financial advisor, so I don't you know, provide any specific advice about that. And how much of their capital should they invest and into which asset classes? And it's the second thing that we're trying to focus in this episode is how much of their capital should they invest because the Kelly Criterion doesn't tell you which asset class to invest it in. Um, and basically, it's a mathematical formula to figure out how much of your capital you should be investing full stop. It doesn't answer about which asset classes you should be investing in, uh, and it, but it does give you a rough idea of how much money you should actually put in based on the available capital that you have. So let's use an example. Uh, let's say Amy is a 40-year-old female and uh, as has $100,000 of money to invest. Um, she has decided to invest that amount of money across multiple asset classes, bonds, uh, high-interest accounts, and paying off some of her mortgage. Uh, she can use the Kelly Criterion to try to have a systemic, systematic way of working out how much of her money she should allocate to one of these classes. And, and, and let's say one of those classes is also the stock market. Now, it depends on the number of factors, which I will break down for you. Now, remember, the Kelly Criterion is just one method used in order to work out how much capital to allocate to a particular investment. Uh, if you want to learn more about asset allocation as a broad topic, uh, I have covered it in depth in episode 50. So go back and listen to it if you're interested. Now, essentially, it's a money management system, and it allows three main things. Um, the first thing is it helps investors calculate what percentage of their money they should allocate to each investment or how much of that money they should allocate to a bet. And the second thing is uh, the percentage it spits out using the formula is the size of the position an investor must take, thereby allowing for portfolio diversification. Um, so, uh, sorry, it's, I, I said three main things. It's actually two main things. So those are the two main things that um, uh, it, it, it allows, um, uh, it being Kelly Criterion. So who actually created this formula is so fascinating to read about it because uh, it was actually first published in 1956 by this guy called John Kelly, 
who happened to work for AT&T and Bell Laboratories, and uh, he actually published it in the context of trying to work out how much noise um, does telecommunication signals get when traveling along long distances. So basically trying to work out how much noise is actually lost uh, and therefore he can figure out how much actually gets to the final destination. Now, he was able to use this formula to work out how much noise can vary the signal transmission from point A to point B. Now, it turns out that this formula also works out well in finances and gambling. And a lot of gamblers actually use the Kelly criterion when staking their bets. Now, I tried to look into this as to the connection between the Kelly criterion when it was first introduced in the telecommunications sector and how it was used in the finance and gambling sector. I still don't get it. I tried to understand that. I can't make that leap. I don't get the link and I don't get the connection, but there you go. Uh, some people got that connection and they started to use it for their own purposes for gambling and finances. And I guess thinking about stock market trading as basically a large, I guess, gambling place, investors have leveraged on this formula to try and maximize their gains and minimize their losses. And essentially, it's an optimal betting strategy if used correctly. That is, if gamblers use the method correctly, they would, over the long term, work out a system of gains such that their downsize uh, sorry, their downside is actually very, very minimal. So imagine going to the casino and gambling and working out a system where you can win most of the times over the long period of time. So how does it actually work? Well, there are two key metrics you need to know for this formula to work. Um, the first one is you need to work out the probability that any trade will be a winner. And that's called a winning probability, okay? So it has to return a positive amount. And to work this out, the investor or gambler must wish to analyze their previous maybe 50 to 100 gambles or trades. Uh, and this gives them an indication on their rate of success uh, of a positive trade. So in this case, we're talking asset classes of stock market or gambling. So I'm gonna use the stock market as an example. And the second thing um, in terms of metrics you need to have for this formula to work is you need to work out your win-loss ratio. That is, you've got to add up all your wins and then divide it by adding up all of your losses as a ratio. It can be a percentage, uh, it can be the total number, etc. So then the formula is, and at this stage you may wish to Google it to get a visual representation, um, is basically the Kelly criterion percentage equals the winning probability minus one minus the winning probability divided by the win-loss ratio. Now, if that all sounds complicated, it kind of is. And let's put it into practice by using an example. Now, back to our scenario with Amy, who has 100 grand to invest, she's wondering how much of that $100,000 she should invest in the stock market. Now, she has, you know, traded stocks before. So the first thing she needs to do is she looks at the last 50 stock trades and she finds out that 30 stock trades were winners and 20 stock trades were losers. And therefore, her winning probability is 30 divided by 50 total trades equals 0.6. This means out of 50 trades, 60% of the time, she returned a winning trade. That's actually pretty good. Now, the second thing is... Um, uh, it, well, sorry, well, generally speaking, 
if your winning probability ratio is greater than 0.5, um, you're doing pretty good. Otherwise, you're just potentially losing money. Although the formula doesn't give the size of your winnings nor the size of your losses, uh, losses just yet. Now, the next step is for Amy to calculate her win-loss ratio. And after analyzing her last 50 trades, she finds out that if she wins on a trade, on average, her gain is around 10%. And if she loses on a trade, on average, she loses around 8%. Now, I've plucked these numbers out of thin air, so bear with me as we go deeper into this geeky concept. It'll make sense, I promise. Just hang with me here. Therefore, the win-loss ratio is 0 0.1, 10% gain, divided by 0 0.08, 8% loss, so the win-loss ratio is 1.25. So in summary, our winning probability is 0.6 and our win-loss ratio is 1.25. So let's plug it into the formula and you might want to use a sheet of paper. And remember the formula is Kelly criterion percentage equals 0.6 in this case because that's the winning probability minus in brackets, 1 minus 0.6, or 1 minus winning probability, divided by 1.25, and you get a number 0.28 in this particular example. Now, this is kind of like saying that Amy should invest 28% of her total capital into her desired asset. In this case, it's the stock market. So uh, again, what does that 0.28 mean? The end figure. This means Amy should invest 28%, so $28,000 of a total capital of $100,000 into a specific asset class. And in this case, it's the stock market because that's the previous trades that she's done. So uh, because, uh, you know, that's what she's used to analyze her last 50 trades. Now, notice the Kelly criterion does not give her any idea about which specific ETFs or which specific shares to invest in, okay? It just tells her how much of a capital to invest into her chosen asset class. So I guess if you're thinking out of 100 grand, isn't it too much putting, you know, all of your eggs in one basket if uh, you're investing 28%? Isn't that a heap of money to put into one bet? And the answer is it is a lot of money to put into one bet, um, and that's why there's also another rule when you talk about the Kelly Criterion, and that is don't put more than 20 to 25% of your money into any one investment. And that's just a common sense rule. So in this particular case, the Kelly Criterion actually, you know, expects you to breach that rule, which, you know, you might want to scale it back to 25%, uh, but you sh really shouldn't be investing 28% of your total capital into any one asset because you know then you sort of lose that edge of diversification. So I guess let's see how this affects Amy if she was a less successful investor because remember she got 60% of winning probability with an average gain of 10% and an average loss of 8% which is pretty impressive. Uh, let's use some different figures and see how that affects the Kelly criterion. So let's say her winning probability is 60%, but the win-loss ratio is now only 0.8. In other words, every time she loses, she loses 10%, but every time she gains, she only gains 8%. 
and that is an average gain is less than an average loss. And this returns a Kelly percentage of 0.1. So notice now the Kelly percentage is only 0.1, whereas in the previous scenario, it was 0.28. That is, Amy should only be setting aside 10% of a capital of $100,000 to invest in the stock market. And remember, in this particular case, um, you know, you know, we have to ask ourselves why is it so different this time compared to the previous, uh, you know, previous time, and that is because she had the same winning probability, but each time she won, she didn't win as much as each time she lost. So notice the winning probability does not tell you how much you won; it just tells you you won majority of the times. Um, uh, whereas, you know, in this particular case, Amy was actually losing more money per trade but overall had a high winning rate. And it would mean overall, she may as well be losing money. That is, in this case, Amy's win-loss ratio was below one. And that's the critical point here. The win-loss ratio really should be above one. And overall brings the formula characteristics to two basic principles numbers that you need to know. You need to know your winning probability, and this should be on average greater than 0.5. Otherwise, you're losing more times than you're winning, in which case, you know, don't put any money into the stock market or any asset class. And the second thing is you need to know your win-loss ratio and ideally that should be greater than one. And this number can be less than one, but it just means your losses you know, it needs to be smaller. So overall, if your number is greater than one for your win-loss ratio, that means you're winning more times in terms of the percentage gain versus the percentage loss. So what happens then if you do this formula and you get a negative Kelly criterion percentage? Well, in stock market investing, it just means you should stop picking stocks because you're not very good at it, because likely you're you know, failing more times than you're winning. And in gambling, it just means you should bet the opposite or bet nothing at all, uh, depending on the game that you're playing. And we all know that you know stock picking in the stock market over the long term, uh, you know, it, it's, it's unlikely to beat the index over the long term. Uh, that's been proven time and time again. So then it brings the concept of fractional Kelly. So what is a fractional Kelly? Well, it just means that, um, you know, you just invest a set percentage of the overall percentage that Kelly Criterion gives you. So whatever number that Kelly Criterion gives you, you say, I want to bet half that uh, amount. So if your fractional Kelly strategy is half, this means you will halve the Kelly percentage, which comes up. So in the first Amy's example, remember the Kelly percentage was 28% of a total capital of $100,000 into the stock market. If Amy's fractional Kelly is half, then she would only be outlaying 14% of her capital. Um, similarly, in the second example, where Amy was going to invest 10%, according to the Kelly criterion formula, if a fractional strategy is half Kelly, then she would only be investing 5% of her capital. So that's what fractional Kelly is. Um, so I guess in summary, what is good about the Kelly criterion is one, it allows you to have a strategy to diversify your investments. Two, it's reasonably efficient and easy for someone to plug some numbers in. Uh, three, it relies on accurate data. Uh, four, and it can soften the blow when it comes to investing but it doesn't eliminate the risk entirely. Uh, now, what are the things that Kelly Criterion can't do? It's really important. It can't predict market crashes. You're still on your own there. 
it can't pick you specific ETFs or shares or whatever asset class you want to invest it in. And it doesn't tell you where to invest your money, which is the other missing link when it comes to investing. Um, so you need to work out where to invest the money and how much money to invest. Um, and what are some of the assumptions for the Kelly Criterion? Number one, the key assumption is the Criterion is that it assumes the investor will reinvest all of their profits. Uh, and this means in our example, Amy's capital is always going to be at risk. Okay, She's not going to draw down on the capital, whether she chooses to invest 28% of it or just 10% of it or whatever fractional Kelly she wants to invest. And why is it important to assume that all profits are reinvested? Because this is because it's trying to work out what is called a optimal growth rate for your portfolio. So if you keep betting, you're likely to keep winning. And over the long term, your portfolio will keep growing. I hope this clarifies Kelly Criterion. And thank you, Raymond, for proposing this topic. It really did take me a very long time to understand it and put it into practice into set examples. Uh, on this episode, I think I've been working on it for about three months. So it's just taken me um, a significant amount of time. This and the one episode that I, or the two episodes that I did about Forex trading were probably the two most complex topics that I've had uh, since I started this uh, investing podcast uh, channel. So we've covered a lot. We've covered, we started off with trying to have four key strategies for late boomers, uh, sorry, late bloomers, beg your pardon, not late boomers, when it comes to saving and investing. Then we really geeked out, I hope, on the Kelly Criterion. Now, do I use the Kelly Criterion? Nope. Um, I don't stock pick. Um, I don't decide on, you know, which asset class that I put my money into. I basically have investment properties and basically more lately, particularly in the last several years, um, I've just been buying index funds because I just index. I put a substantial amount of money in my capital into the index fund portfolio that I have, and I figure I'll just keep doing this forever and reinvest my dividends. And so far, it's done really, really well. And I don't think I'm any sort of genius uh, to be able to do that over the long term. I've been doing it for a long time now. This is my 12th year of investing, and uh, hopefully I've got another 28 more years to go. Now, remember, uh, to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using, or leave a five-star review and rating on all of the uh, platforms that you might be using uh, to listen to my channel. So that's even better. And please leave a positive review. I really love reading reviews um, on these channels. Um, and in that theme, here's a review that I found on CastBox app from Surya. He or she says, Hey, Dev, thank you for your commitment to consistently deliver such informative, simplified, well-researched, well-presented financial podcasts for us. I understand them in your words much better than any financial advisor could explain to me. They are absolute gold and I'm enjoying them thoroughly. Your podcast or investing for kids is super awesome and an eye-opener on various levels. And thank you once again. Now, just uh, thank you so much for that review. I think that's fantastic. And and if you if you have friends or family, get them hooked on the podcast. My aim is to do this for free um, and try and reach as many ears as I possibly can. And just one final thing about investing for kids. A lot of people try and, you know, try and put money away for the kids. And I think that's a good thing. But don't forget to educate and tell them because kids are very receptive um, they are very, very observant. So they learn from behaviors and actions done by their parents or their friends or their uncles or aunts or grandparents, etc. So make sure that, yes, invest for kids, 
but don't hide it from them. Tell them how it all works, the power of compounding, the fee structures, etc. You don't need to complicate things. Just say that, hey, look, um, we're just putting a set amount of percentage into your portfolio, and these are the reasons we're doing it so that you will have a better financial future. Now, of course, the more ratings and reviews you leave about my channel, the more people get access to the podcast, so please keep them coming. Remember to like the Devraga Facebook page, shout out to comments and questions or topic suggestions, and thank you very much to all of those that engage with me online via Facebook. Share this channel with family and friends, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, CastBox, Spotify, Google. We're on all of the major podcasting platforms. And remember, always pay yourself first. Take that 20% of after-tax income and put it aside because you're the most important person in your life. And learn about Kelly Criterion or other mathematical formulas or strategies for diversification. The more concepts you learn about money, the better it is for you. This is Dev Rucker, Personal Finance, episode 122. And as always, please stay safe and uh, I'll catch you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.